Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Faith Wilcox believes writing leads to healing. She learned these truths when her 13-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, was diagnosed with bone cancer that took her life. Faith's journey from grief and despair to moments of comfort and peace taught her lessons which she shares through her writing. Faith is the author of Hope is a Bright Star, a mother's memoir of love, loss, and learning to live again. And she is also the author of Facing into the Wind, a mother's healing after the death of her child, which is a book of poetry. And we're going to talk more about her books a little bit later. But for right now, I want you to join me in thanking Faith so much for coming on today and sharing your story. It's not very often that I get a caregiver to come on, so I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for asking me to join you today. As a caregiver myself, I am already touched by your story and I barely know it. So can you take us back, Faith, to the beginning of where things started with Elizabeth? Of course. During the summer of 2000, Elizabeth started to uh, complain about some pain in her knee and some pain in her lungs. I took her to a doctor, her pediatrician, who thought he didn't he couldn't identify the pain in her lungs, but thought perhaps the pain in her knee was due to a growth spurt. She had grown from five, six to five, nine in a year. And many girls on her soccer team were also having pains in their knees. So I was relieved that there didn't seem to be something bigger going on. But as the weeks went by, about six weeks later, the pain in her knee and her chest was increasing. And so we went to see an orthopedic doctor. The orthopedic doctor took an x-ray of her knee and it was on a Friday. And he said, I'll call you back on Monday. One Monday, Elizabeth's pediatrician called, not the orthopedic doctor, which alarmed me from the start. And he said that Elizabeth had a growth in her knee that needed to be identified. And you should see a different orthopedic doctor at Mass General uh, the following day. We went in, and as I stood outside the office, I saw on the placard, orthopedic oncology. That was the very first time I had a clue of what was maybe going to be tumbling out in front of us. I stood in front of the placard because my daughter Elizabeth was was only 13 years old. This was a shock to me and would be an incredible shock to her. But once we were in the office, I could tell people there had had very serious um, problems. Some people were amputees, some people you know, head on a neck brace, and I could hear some conversations going on quietly, and I knew this was very serious. Within a few days, Elizabeth was diagnosed with cancer, but they didn't know whether it was a type called Ewing sarcoma or a type called osteosarcoma, 
both are very serious, but osteosarcoma is much harder to recover from. So Elizabeth had a surgery and we found out very, very quickly that she had osteosarcoma and our whole world collapsed. So over the next 10 months, Elizabeth had many, many, many rounds of chemotherapy, usually about once every three weeks. They would leave her wiped out for a whole week. She would be in the hospital. And then if we were fortunate, she would have two weeks at home. She did some amazing things during this time. She showed such strength. Of course, she had her bad days. Of course, she had her days that she was very, very ill and couldn't lift her head off the pillow. But when she could, her humor returned and she did something that touched all of us. She started to go into the rooms of children who had recently been brought into the hospital. She was in her wheelchair. She had her sweatshirt on with a hood and a baseball cap to hide that she didn't have any hair. And she talked to the children from their perspective so that they could understand in children's terms what was going to perhaps be going on with their surgery or their radiation or their chemotherapy. Soon mothers came to me in the hallway and said, we were so afraid, but Elizabeth helped take away some of our fear by talking with us. Elizabeth had radiation during the 11th month of her treatments, but her tumors kept growing and growing and it was just a horribly aggressive cancer. Elizabeth died in my arms 365 days after she was diagnosed at age 14. My older daughter and I were really in a maelstrom of grief. When I say older daughter, she was only 15 at the time. They were 18 months apart and inseparable. So a long, pretty much dark period in my life ensued, and I tried the best I could to be a mother for my grieving child, but it was very hard because my grief was so strong as well. Where was her father in all of this, if he was involved? And also, um, when you were doing the chemo, did they talk to you about what the goals were? Did they give you a prognosis? Did they actually put numbers on the table? So can we dive into those details a little bit more? Of course. This was another very difficult chapter in my life, but I was in a marriage that was very shaky. And after Elizabeth was diagnosed, I realized that my husband just didn't have the ability to put her first and to put both of our daughters first in our lives. And I waited a few weeks, but I just realized this was happening again and again. And so I actually left after six weeks and I went to live with my sister. There I had the support that I needed and my daughters had the support that they needed. And it actually was a huge relief for me just to be able to focus on my girls. Um, my marriage did not last, which is a huge strain when a child is ill, but also my, as I said, my marriage was very shaky to begin with. In terms of the chemotherapy, it was really, really difficult. They said that they there weren't protocols to follow particularly. They had to go look and do a lot of research. It's a rare disease, 
and you know one out of every 250,000 children get it each year. So they were very cooperative with other hospitals and tried to figure out the best protocols, which I think for a while they did because her tumor started shrinking. But it is just such, such an aggressive illness that the chemotherapy had to be what they called intensive chemotherapy. They never really gave me numbers. She was diagnosed when she was stage four, and I think they didn't really give me numbers because they probably, percentage-wise, were, were not good. What was her sister's reaction, so your oldest child's reaction? She was in a state of shock, as I was, and over time, she started to feel very, very torn between going to school, which I encouraged her to do, and where she could lead a semi-normal life with other children. And then she could visit Elizabeth in the evenings at the hospital. But that also was a very, very big strain on her. So she didn't visit all every day after school. She also felt very started to feel very alienated from others in the school because when they would complain about a hamburger being overdone, <laughs> she just realized they had no clue. They did not know what anything that she was going through. And so it was very hard for her. She really felt hard to fit into any any of this is a new environment. It was a new high school. So it was very, very hard for her. How do you think your experience was different as a caregiver than Elizabeth's direct experience as a patient? As a caregiver, you're witnessing the deep trauma that she's going through. And it's very, very hard to witness. I had said to myself many times, I wish I could be in her place. So she didn't have to go through all of this pain. Also, it's hard to know about the treatments and to know what is coming up for Elizabeth. I was given a little more information than Elizabeth to try to protect her some. So I knew an awful lot and it was just really, really harsh to be in the seat of a caregiver when I knew so much was, was in front of us. I've heard many patients say that they, from their perspective, that they feel like the caregivers had a more difficult time because as a mm -hmm. patient, you're just in it and your whole goal is just to fight it and you're just focused 100% on yourself, which you should be. Mm -hmm. Whereas a caregiver, everything you just said um, so beautifully is true. For me, when I was caring for my sister with a stage four cancer diagnosis, I had a very difficult time finding support, which shocked me because we were at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, one of the top children's hospitals in the country, and, and I couldn't find that. Did you seek support? And if so, what did that look like? I was very, very fortunate. I did have support at the hospital. Um, each time a family comes in with a serious illness, they are assigned a social worker and they're assigned a psychiatrist. And the social worker and psychiatrist meets with the whole family. Together we met as parents and also we met um, individually 
and they met individually with the children. So I felt that each one of us was given support there. I also independently had a therapist who could help me enormously. And in time, I got a therapist for my oldest daughter. Oh, you did. What was that like for her? I think it was really difficult. She was at this time only 16. So I think part of her wanted to share what was going on. And part of her was just really angry at the world. And that anger spilled over into many different avenues in her life. So I'm not quite sure what it was to be in her therapist chair, but I'm sure it was very challenging because Alex was hurting so, so much. Was there a moment when things got worse? Was there a moment that you realized that Elizabeth might not make it? There definitely was a moment. I was watching a full body scan that was going on. And the full body scan wasn't like an MRI, do not need to go into a a machine. Rather, in a full body scan, Elizabeth was lying on a flat table and a camera above her was going back and forth. And then there was something like a very large television screen off to the side. When I looked, I could see the tumors which would show up as bright lights. It looked like a starry night. I couldn't believe it. I simply couldn't believe how many tumors were in her body. Oh my goodness, Faith, I'm so sorry. Um, we, we experienced something very, very similar when I saw the, um, when I saw the scans of my sister's lungs. It looked mm-hmm. like it was snowing in her lungs. What was your worst moment? That was really, really one of my very worst moments. I, I don't think it got worse, almost worse than that. What was your best moment? My best moment was unexpected. One night when Elizabeth had been in for a whole week, it was a Friday and she was really, really hoping to go home for the weekend, but her cell counts came back really low and she was not able to go home for the weekend. And she was really upset. And I said to myself, how can I turn this around? So what I did is I had a child life specialist come and she and Elizabeth talked some, and then they selected a movie. I went down the street and I chose food from one of her favorite Italian restaurants. And I chose some tortellini. We came back, I sat on her bed and we watched this movie and we ate tortellini. And it was a really, really funny movie. And we laughed and we had the best time. (laughs) It just made me realize you can have really, really good moments. It won't necessarily be that you could have a whole good day, but you can have good moments and that you should hold on to them. Oh, absolutely. If you're willing to go there, I'd like to talk about something you said earlier because it was just so beautiful and I don't think most people understand that it's it's not easy to give someone a good death because often you have to go against the medical establishment so to be able to hold your child in your arms as they're dying if you're willing I would like you to take us back there you know what was she at home and what did that entail 
of course, about uh, 11 months into her treatments, she realized that she was not going to make it. And the doctor had had, she wanted an honest conversation and he had told her that she had so many tumors in her lungs that at some point it would become very hard for her to breathe. So we came home and she had an oxygen um, machine for about three weeks and that helped her to breathe. But then the tumors just kept on progressing. So Elizabeth herself asked for hospice care. So we had hospice workers come to the house and about one week um, before she died, I really noticed a very big change with she having very, very little energy, um, barely being able to get out of bed. And we had the hospice workers come a little bit more frequently. Then there was one particular morning that I woke up early and I knew as well as I could know that this was probably the end of her life. And so the hospice workers came over early. It was a Saturday morning. They came over about 7.30 in the morning. My father came over and my two sisters came over and my mother as well. My father and my two sisters were sitting in the room with me as was my older daughter and my mother was sitting outside and it was a whole entire day but her breathing just slowed down and slowed down and slowed down and in time the hospice workers gave her morphine and I was able to be on her bed I was able to be holding her and she died very peacefully in my arms. Olivia was sitting by Elizabeth's side and she was had her arms wrapped around her as well. So Elizabeth, Elizabeth really did die in the arms of love. Oh my goodness. That was a gift that you gave her. I hope you know that. That was a real gift. Um, because I've seen a I've seen a good death, I've seen a bad death, and you, you that was a gift you gave her. So Faith, what is the one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of Elizabeth's cancer journey, like that, that day one? It's a difficult question because there's so many parts of a cancer journey. I think how much energy I was going to need was actually quite a shock. I didn't realize what it was like to be in shock. I didn't realize that you could go all day long and then fall asleep for maybe an hour and then be wide awake and look at the ceiling all night. I didn't realize the energy that it would take to just go through each day and the emotional toll that would take on me, take on Elizabeth and take on my older daughter, Olivia. I'm not quite sure how we would have garnered more energy but I wish I had known and somehow been able to muster up more energy during this process. So what would you say to, to parents who, with a newly, with a child who's newly diagnosed with cancer, what would you say to them or suggest ways that they could get more energy? I think one thing, reason why it was a little bit hard for me is because I was doing this essentially as a solo parent. But I think what would be really important and really helpful is if grandparents can take a very active role, 
if you have another child at home, the other child at home needs you tremendously as well. So if the parents either can go together to the hospital sometimes and then have grandparents at home, or perhaps it's an aunt or uncle, or perhaps it's a godparent, or perhaps it's all of those, and they spend time with the child at home, that is really, really valuable. And then also to spell each other to one parent might go to the hospital one day and another parent another day so that the, the parent has a little bit of, I'll say time off in quotation marks because it's never off. You're always thinking about what's going on. I was really blessed with something else. As I said, Elizabeth was often in the hospital for a full week. And if you spent the night in a hospital, you realize you really don't sleep very well. <laughs> yeah, you don't at all. It's terrible. Right. <laughs> it's, it is pretty terrible. So my girlfriends started about once a week or sometimes twice a week to go in and spend nights with Elizabeth. I had a handful of girlfriends who would do this and I could go home and sleep. And I think if if your child feels comfortable with this, it is a real gift to be able to go home and to be able to sleep. Mm. That is fantastic advice. Um, yeah, the worst sleep of my life is usually in a hospital. Faith, if, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? I would have healthcare for everyone either for free or for a very nominal cost or have it on a graduated scale so that those who have more pay more for health insurance. Because I think so many illnesses are happening now and they can often be looked at early on. And so an illness that say like diabetes, so that someone doesn't just go to the hospital when they're in a critical stage, but that They've, they've had health care up to this point. They've had maybe regular blood screenings up to this point, and they can find out ahead of time that their counts are off or what might be a problem. So I think a lot for, for the health of this country and for individuals, having health care for everyone would help enormously. You had health insurance with Elizabeth, correct? Believe it or not, I didn't. I was self-employed and my husband was self-employed and it was a huge, huge, up to this, up to just a few years before I was always with an employer and I had health insurance and I was so incredibly fortunate that there was a grant that was given to Elizabeth and through this grant, she received health insurance. If you can find it and if it still exists, would you make sure to give me that link so I can put that in the notes? I will try to find it, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Because I think there are so many resources that exist that most people don't know about, you know, and they're not aware of. I would like to ask you about the after, because that's not something I get to ask very often. And I know for me, I, I have one book. And it's about that time period of both raising Adrian for seven years and then that 147-day cancer journey she had. But I have not written a book about the after. And that was a very difficult is the understatement word for me. But um, 
I would like you to tell us a little bit about whatever you're comfortable. What was it like that first year after Elizabeth died? The first year, I think I was still in a state of shock. I was often feeling like I was functioning, but I wasn't really able to be thinking clearly. I remember my daughter told me one time that I went through three red lights. I don't even remember it. That's sort of an example of how my brain wasn't functioning properly. I remember the times that I was, I could prepare myself, for example, when it was a holiday, the best that I could. I learned in time to make plans on the holiday and I started not to have holidays at home for a while that was just too hard. So I go to a place or a city that I really liked, like Newport, Rhode Island. Um, sometimes I spend holidays with friends. But I found that day to day I could get really set off. I could be in the grocery store and see the little bite brownies, which were her favorite and just leave the grocery store crying, just leave my cart and just just go. So it is, it's a surreal feeling over time. And this was probably at about year two, I started to feel a little bit more like myself. I was able to concentrate more. I had returned to work and that was good for me and that I was seen as a colleague quite often, not solely as a bereaved mother. But it took a long time until I started to get my strength back and started to be able to think coherently. How did it affect your relationships? It was difficult on relationships. Sometimes I would just be at home and I'd be sobbing and a friend might come over to be with me. My, my really closest friends who could handle this were just sitting by my side and just thinking of me and their presence helped me enormously. Sometimes I, or I would go out to dinner and the hardest question is how many children do you have? And I would make a 60 second assessment and I would decide is, can this person handle the truth? Or should I just say I have one daughter? I went back and forth depending on just my gut feeling about the individual, but that was really, really hard in the years that followed. It still is a hard question. It's not just, it's not as raw anymore. Oh my gosh. I think that's a perfect example. And I couldn't have described it better myself. You make, you make a decision like you said, whether someone can handle it. And I have said none, and I have said one, um, but she died. Um, After my sister died, a few years later, I got married. And had I not been in the grief I was in, I probably wouldn't have gotten married, especially to this person. He was not a bad person, just not the right person for me. And because we were newly married, because he was older and had never had children, we got the, well, when are you guys going to have kids question a lot, even though he knew that I was not going to have any children. And just that question put a lot of stress on us, you know, even going out to dinner with people, it was, please don't let us get that question. How is it for your oldest daughter, those first few years? 
the first few years were really rugged. As I said, it was hard to be in high school and to be with children who had totally different um, lives at that time. They might be in a soccer team, a swim team. Life was basically pretty good for most high school students. But what she did find in time were a few students who had lost a parent um, and she felt a little more of a connection with them because they had had some suffering. And it, we continued there. She continued her therapy, which I do think helped. She also had a phase of being very angry. And this was really difficult for me. I could comfort her, I think, quite well when she was feeling sorrowful. But when she was angry, it was very hard for me to know what to do. Ultimately, I know what anger is. Anger pushes somebody away. And so it was very hard to try to connect with her during those times. She went to college, had very was had a really positive college experience. She went to a completely different area of the country. And I think it was renewing and refreshing where she could start again and not solely be seen as a bereaved sister but to to start start life again the best that she could there's something you said there about anger so i want to ask you from one caregiver to another i think most people know the five stages of grief but just in case um depression anger bargaining denial and acceptance and People experience them in different stages, may not experience all of them. And I did have a very serious boyfriend um, by the time my sister was diagnosed, and he was really the only father figure she ever had. And after she died, I was in a very severe depression, and he was very angry, and it tore us apart. I personally did not experience anger until years later, many years later. And I won't go into it, but it was just basically a TV show that set me off. It was it was wild to me that more than 15 years after Adrian died, all of a sudden the anger came out. Like it, it's like it had just been festering. I'm curious for you. Did you experience all of those emotions? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I definitely experienced depression. Um, depression was probably with me for a good five years. I did have counseling. I did um, have medications to help. I felt that if I could be engaged with the world, I was doing better. So for example, returning to work was helpful for me. I found ways to find comfort and peace. I, of course, experienced depression. I really didn't experience the anger. That just wasn't an emotion that came across with me. Did you experience any denial or bargaining? And then of course, later acceptance. I definitely experienced denial during Elizabeth's time of her illness. I just couldn't let it in that she might die. But after holding your child who has died, you can't deny that anymore. I really In time, I went to acceptance. I went to accept that I will never know why she got so ill. I will never know why her life was taken so long, but I can't fight that because there's no answer for that. 
And if I stay wondering or if I turned into an angry person, that would overtake me and I wouldn't be able to find the joy that's in my life. And I know Elizabeth wanted me to live a good life. She told me that many times when she was really, really ill. She wanted me to remarry. She wanted me to be with children again. She wanted me to go volunteer in schools like I had done before. So acceptance brought about quite a lot of peace within me. Well, that's a perfect segue. What does your life look like today? My life is good today. Yesterday was Elizabeth's birthday. So of course I remember her very poignantly on those days, but I did remarry and my husband is older and has grandchildren. So we have the joy of having grandchildren in our lives. My older daughter married Uh, last weekend. So that was of great, great happiness to us as well. I've been writing for many, many years, and I've put my writing into a book. And that has brought me a lot of joy um, as well. Normally, I save the books at the end, and we're going to mention them again at the end, because we're going to put them in the show notes. But do tell us about one of your books, since you just mentioned writing and how much it helped you. Of course. Um, Hope is a Bright Star, a Mother's Memoir of Love, Loss, and Learning to Live Again, is my story about Elizabeth, which many, much of which I have been speaking about here, about her strength, about her good days and her bad days, about her humor, about her wanting a good life for me after she was gone. It's also about my depression and struggling to cope after her death. But it is also very much a story of five women friends of mine who stayed by my side, who supported me enormously during Elizabeth's illness and after her illness by, for example, some of these women spent the night in the hospital. And just wherever I was, they seemed to accept um, my emotional state at the time. And it's about ways that I found comfort and peace and was able to move to acceptance and was able to also see the joy in life again. I Well, first of all, I need to read it. And second of all, I think that's amazing that you had those and still have those female friends. One of my struggles that, and I haven't written about it too much yet, is I lost all of my friends after Adrian died. I had a very tight-knit group of friends. They call themselves the uncles and aunts. They were all there for her cancer journey, but I lost all of them by the time I was in my mid-30s or so. And and that was very painful. Of course. That's terrible. And I think a lot of it has to do with my life. Just took a very different direction. All right. So we have been talking about a very heavy subject. (laughs) Are you ready to lighten it up and do the Thriver rapid fire questions? Okay. All right. I can't wait to hear your answers. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach for sure. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach Boys. What is one word that best describes you? Gentle. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Uh, you are in my heart. And what is the last meal you want to eat? 
a lobster roll. <laughs> That's so good. And the last person or people you want to see? I want to see my husband, my daughter, my stepchildren, and my grandchildren. And the last words you will speak? I love you to whoever is holding me. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? I'd recommend the Compassionate Friends, and I'd also recommend the Centering Corporation. If it's not too bold, I'd recommend reading books that will help you with um, grieving and healing. And I'd recommend reading Hope is a Bright Star, also Facing into the Wind, A Mother's Healing After the Death of Her Child. I think it's important to read, to be able to know that other people have gone through difficulties as well, and that you are not alone. And sometimes by reading, you can absorb the information in stages. You can read a few poems, you can read a few chapters, and then you can stop and you can think about it. And I think even though everyone's journeys are very, very hard, it's really important to hold on to hope. And if you find books that have hope as a theme, I think you can help yourself enormously. And can you tell for people who don't know um, what Compassionate Friends is and also the second one I'm not familiar with? Sure. Compassionate Friends specifically helps people who have lost a child and it also helps with sibling loss. So that is their focus and they have a lot of resources. They also have local chapters. They also have books that they recommend and places to go for support. And I've gone to, um, well, a couple of virtual conferences for them. And I feel that they have tremendous resources in their workshops. The other one is called the Centering Corporation and the Centering Corporation helps anyone with grieving Again, they have a tremendous amount of resources, and sometimes it's magazines, sometimes, of course, on their websites, they have blogs, they have um, chapter meetings, they have conferences, they have small local conferences, and then sometimes national conferences, and um, both of those organizations are international. They both have chapters around the world. Oh, wow. I didn't know that about Compassionate Friends. Wow. Thank you. And if people want to get in touch with you, Faith, what is the best way to get in touch with you? Sure. Send me an email at faith at faithwilcoxnarratives.com. All right. We will make sure to put that in the workshop and the show notes. Faith, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I can't believe I got through it without crying, but I think I did. But thank you so much. (laughs) You are so very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.